The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to go ahead and read all of 1 through 14. Kind of bring us back up to speed over the last couple um, sermons that we've had. If you weren't here, it's going to be a little bit of a way to catch up. So if you'll follow along with me, I didn't put all the verses up on the slides, just the ones that we're going to be preaching on this morning, but I'm going to read the entire thing. And the slides can pick up uh, in verse 12 with us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, father were, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And now we're into the text. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be in your house this morning. We thank you for your word and the power that it carries. We thank you for your spirit and the life that you give. Thank you for your son and what he has accomplished for us, Lord, and your, for what you have planned for us. I do pray that these words, Lord, um, from this passage would speak to our hearts, that they would help us in our weakness, that we'd find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in the Savior who has accomplished so much for us and the work of the Spirit that is doing so much on our behalf. Lord, we pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So Paul starts this passage with the word therefore. And so I just want to remind us that as we're reading these next few verses, to try to keep in mind the, the topics and the subjects, we don't have time to go over all of it, of, of the last couple sermons that Jacob's preached to us. Uh, he is calling us back towards the verses that preceded this. We have to look at the verses that we're going to read and study today with consideration to these previous things. And Paul is saying, in light of everything that I have shared with you, Corinth, I have something I want you to consider, to know, and to apply. The stories I'm telling you, they weren't just cute stories about 23,000 people dying from sexual immorality in the desert. These are things that you need to take heed of, that you have to, you have to get a warning from. They're examples of the justice of God meeting the unholiness of his people. When we consider what this means for us, and we're talking about temptation, and we're talking about how we handle temptation, I think we could be tempted, pun intended, to kind of freak out. The justice of God meeting the unholiness of his people in very clear and distinct language, as in the verses that we've just read, we can kind of get scared. Is the justice of God such that he dishes it out all willy-nilly to every single person that makes a mistake? 
you're a child of his and you mess up and he's just like, I'm done with you. No, absolutely not. I don't think any of us would be in this room this morning if that was the case. I know I wouldn't be here. And so we're talking about something that's a little bit different. The answer is profoundly no. God does not operate that way, thankfully. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy as much as he's a God of justice. He's all of those things at the same time. And again, we don't have time to recount the sermon from last week, but if you remember, what we're dealing with is more than mere mistakes, more than mere mishaps, more than mere mess-ups, something that God allows for, plans for, and allows within his grace and his goodness to us. It's a, it's a way that we grow. It's a way that he pushes us forward. But what we're looking at, and what Paul is calling back to memory from these last few verses, was a systemic issue of failing and falling to personal desires in pursuit of personal idols. Just trying to bring this a little bit back into memory. They were thanking man-made gods for the freedom that they had received from the one true God. They were confounding the source. It's a little bit like getting arrested for stealing. I won't get a show of hands on how many of you experienced that. And then showing up to court, hearing that your debts are all paid, and there's a promise to provide for you for the rest of your life, and then you just go around telling everyone and that you've somehow convinced yourself that the money you stole has met all your needs. And you can't wait to do it again. <laughs> We've been met with grace. We have been met with mercy. The children of Israel were met with very specific, very clear, very physical, gracious acts of God to supply their needs, to protect them from temptation, to call their focus back on him. And their response was such that, I'm really grateful for those gods back in Egypt that have provided for us along the way as we're running from their most loyal subjects. As we're, as we're escaping the, uh, the slavery that they had put us in, we're grateful that those gods that we served for all those years with l very no, little to no, really, no return, we're grateful that they've done all these things for us. And it's something we can do. We, it's something we can fall into. God's grace was given to them to provide for them in the desert, and instead they chose to use, or sorry, rather, they said they chose to meet that with grumbling and design their own devices of worship that would allow them to satisfy their own desires. And God's justice could not and cannot abide with that. We don't get to throw his goodness back in his face. Matthew Henry said it this way, and I thought this was really helpful. None are ruined by the justice of God, but those that hate to be reformed by the grace of God. None are ruined by his justice, except for those that hate to be reformed by his grace. He offers his grace and justice follows when it's failed to be accepted or failed to be considered or failed to be followed up on. It's not trying to scare us. Paul is not trying to scare us, but rather he is pointing to a fact. He's pointing to a grace that meets us at our mistakes and calls us to worship Christ in thankfulness. And a no to that grace will be met with the justice of God, and that's for all of us. We all mess up. We all make mistakes, but we're all met with the grace of God as his children. So I want us to understand that we are common in our struggle. 
main point. We're common in our struggle, but we're together in our need for Jesus. This is, this is something our church is built around. We love Jesus together. Why? Because we need Jesus together. Why? Because we mess up for Jesus together. And he calls us together to deal with that. It's a real thing. It's a real exercise. And the first thing we can consider, how is this being acted out? How are we having our needs met in Jesus? The first thing we can do is consider the fact that none of us are beyond falling. Not a single one of us are beyond falling. Look at verse 12. Therefore, based on everything I've said, based on everything I've taught to this point, from chapter 9 up, and really before that, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I've given you examples. I've, I've showed you that the children of Israel had miracle after miracle. They had the fire guiding them by night. They had the cloud guiding them by day. They had food that the angels eat dropping from heaven. They had birds arrive when that wasn't good enough and they needed meat. They've had a rock physically following them around the desert, spitting out water so that they didn't die of thirst. And they still fell. So it's possible for us to fall. In light of the graces that God puts in our lives, it is possible for us to fall. In light of what occurred over and over and over again, be aware, hear the warning, because we can fall as the Israelites did. It's not a joke. The Spirit moved on Paul to write these things because they were and they are absolutely necessary to be remembered. They're needed. He's not trying to give us a lack of assurance. He's not saying that there's no such thing as assurance or even that you can't trust your assurance. What he's saying is that there is such a thing as false or untrustworthy assurance. So I think there's two kinds of assurance in view here. And I hope you can see this in the passage with me. The first kind, the correct kind, would be an, insurance, an assurance that rests on the promises of God. An assurance that rests on the promise of God. These things are sticky. All right, here we go. Move this up. An assurance that rests on the promises of God. Calvin said of this type of assurance that the heart feels assured that God will never be far from it. When the heart is experiencing this kind of assurance, it feels assured that God will never be far from it. And relying on this unconquerable persuasion, that's the persuasion that God is not far, that he is present and he is meeting my needs and he is satisfying. We're relying on that unconquerable, that unchangeable, that unsubmitting persuasion. We triumph boldly and bravely over Satan and sin and yes, Nevertheless, keeping in mind our own sin, we cast ourselves upon God and with carefulness and anxiety commit ourselves to him. So we start with an absolute assurance that God is near to us, that he is providing for us, that he is holding us fast as we sing. And we follow that up with in our need, in our anxiousness, we will fling ourselves on him. This type of assurance is holy, it's God-given, it's inseparable from faith. If you have faith, you have this type of assurance. That doesn't mean you never question it, doesn't mean you never struggle with it, it just means that it exists, it is present. It's the kind of assurance we see spoken all over scripture. I'm going to read one set of verses, you don't have to turn there, Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the basis of our assurance is that God has done something in our hearts and that Christ's death on the cross accomplished something fixed in eternity that continues throughout all time. We have assurance in his work. We have assurance in what he's done for us. But there is a second type of assurance. And I would say that this is the type of assurance that Paul is focusing on in this passage. It's an assurance that focuses on the gifts we've been given with very little regard to the giver who gave them. So it's an assurance that focuses on the gifts that we've been given. It's assurance is born from the fact, or born from an instance where we rely on the gifts we have been given, the good things talked about in verses 1 through 5. The Lord's Supper, prayer, baptism. These are means of grace into our lives that God gives to bring himself near and draw us close to him. To keep the reality of his death and what he accomplished for us fresh in our minds. He gives these things to the church. This is why we do it weekly with the Lord's Supper. This is why we're excited about our baptism service. Because God provides assurance of faith through these things. But there is a sense in which we can rely on these things without the correct motive or the correct posture. And so we have to take into consideration our motive and our posture. How are we thinking through these things? And I'm not going to linger here, but they're not to build up in us some conceited confidence, some self-righteousness, but rather a reminder that we desperately need something greater than ourselves if we are to persevere to the end. They point us to Christ because he is what we need to be assured of our victory. He gives us salvation. He gives us assurance of salvation. He is both its author and its finisher. This isn't, or sorry, rather together we need him because we struggle with temptation and we struggle with assurance. I hope that's clear that that there is a, a sense in which we can take the good things that God has given us and allow them to almost subvert him in our reliance. We are to rely on the work that he has done, and we're to be reminded of the work that he's done through the gifts that he gives us. God said essentially that I have been gracious to you in the death of my son. I will continue to be gracious to you in your life. We do not want to rest on these symbols, these signs, or even these means to provide that grace. We're wrestling on the finished work of Christ and what he's accomplished and what he is doing in us. So not only are we able to fall, hopefully that's clear, but the temptations that we fall to, the temptations that we face, the temptations that we struggle with, these are common temptations. Number two, they're common. The temptations we face are common. This is a whole book thing, okay? This isn't a New Testament idea. This isn't even just an Old Testament idea. This isn't just the children of Israel. This is woven throughout 
the entire book we're looking at. Genesis, God creates the world, the world falls, he wipes out everybody, eight of us. They restart things. God's chosen people come to fruition out of that. They fall over and over and over and over again. Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. All of those books are kind of all about that whole idea of falling, we're sorry, we're living with you, we're falling, we're sorry, we're living with you. And God meets them with grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. And then judgment when that grace is denied. But it's common. It's common. I want to illustrate this really quickly. I'm a big fan of podcasts. And one of the podcasts that I really like is Hardcore History. Um, Disclaimer, there's some language in those sometimes. So if you're going to listen to them, um, just keep that in mind. But they're like really long, six-hour, four to six-hour excerpts on history and One of my favorite series, which is like six episodes long, it's like 30-something hours of listening, is on World War I. It's Blueprint for Armageddon. And he begins the whole discussion with something that, and and applies it to today, with something that is so unique in the way we think about it. And and I'm just trying to draw a parallel between how we think about the temptation that we're going through, because I think the temptation is to face our temptation, like we're the only ones that have ever gone through it. Nobody can help us. Nobody understands. We're unique. We're special. Nobody gets it. And it is a common uh, narrative today that what, what they would refer to as an age of terrorism is something that's unique to like the last 20 years. So they would, they would say there's an age of terrorism that began on September 11th, 2001 with the attack in New York City. And it's and it's carried over these last 20 years. And what the, the guy who does the podcast, he's making a point and saying, this really, like, not to draw away from the horrific things that happened on that day. Not to draw away from the fact that that was absolutely awful and kind of ununderstandable in history. Like, it, it just wasn't something that had happened, at least in our context before. It wasn't new. He would draw it back a little bit further quite quite further, actually, kind of turn of the century and say that this type of terrorism, this type of thing, um, would have never happened were it not for something that happened like 1917, 1914. Because really, World War II never would have happened if this thing hadn't have happened, because World War I never would have happened if this thing hadn't have happened. It was an assassination of a duke uh, named Franz Ferdinand in the country of, well, in a part of Serbia, where one young man who was part of one small group, who was part of a country that was pretty much thought to be worthless, was able to assassinate the husband and wife that were kind of big deal leaders in the country of Austria, which was a a big deal country back then. And what was not intended by that assassination, at least I don't think, and I think if we could bring back... um, if we could bring back Gavrilo Princip, the guy who pulled the trigger today, he, he probably would indicate that I did not mean to start a world war, which would lead to a second world war, which would lead to literally kind of these really random acts of terrorism happening throughout this last century. I was just trying to free my country. But, but in reality, what he did is he pulled the trigger, and then he set off this switch of these allies over here were mad at these allies over here, and these allies, and then all of a sudden the whole world is in this entanglement. And this has been 
commonplace for the last hundred years in our world, at least. If not, and we could probably make the argument that goes way back further than that. But still, kind of more, more modern example would be that this guy did something that set off something that would basically reoccur over and over and over again, maybe even in smaller pockets, till today. And what we're looking at here is that these temptations that we consider to be so unique are really just a repeat of history. The things that we face, the things that we go through, they might be more modern, they might be more prevalent, but they're just the same old tricks the devil's been playing forever. These are common temptations. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In simple language, Paul is saying, you are not special. <laughs> and that is probably not normative counseling language that we should be using when we're dealing with each other. If somebody comes to you in this church and, and says, I'm really struggling with this, don't, you're not special. Get over it. That's not what I'm saying. But there, there is a way that we can appreciate the struggle that somebody has without making them think they're patient zero and there's no cure. Does that make sense? Like, like, I, I can appreciate the struggle that you have with that sin. I can appreciate the temptation to get angry. I can appreciate the temptation to lust. But you're not alone in this. This is not new. Paul is looking back at the examples of verses 6 through 11 and saying, take courage. You can look to the past and be stirred up to repentance today. It's encouraging. It's a consoling word. It doesn't sound like it when he says, everybody gets tempted. You're all doomed. But it is encouraging. Paul is encouraging us. In light of what Israel went through, you can take heart. In light of the lessons of the wrath of God in the previous verses, the audience in Corinth might find themselves discouraged, worried, or scared. But Paul is saying that there is room for repentance. And I want to point out that there is a community component to this. And frankly, it's one our church is fairly decent at, but I think we still need to hear it. I know I do. Are you willing to share your struggles with those who are facing the same? In the throes of your temptation, are you willing to step out of the notion that yours is different, that no one will understand you, and see that you are surrounded by a gospel community that God has sovereignly and providentially placed you in, and provided for you. Paul is consoling us to the fact that, yes, we struggle, but we have a common struggle, a common temptation. We all need Jesus. We're in this together. We are together in that need. In King's Cross, I hope we're together in that fight. I hope that we are a place where people can come in, even our closest friends, because I feel like the more you know someone, the more awkward it gets, the harder it gets. And, and you can start sharing things that you're struggling with. And you can expect that somebody so, at some point is going to say, listen, I have dealt with that. And here's what God did for me. I faced that temptation, and by his grace, yes, it's still a temptation, but I have overcome. Because that's the power of Christ at work in his body. We can speak into each other's lives. We can call each other from the temptations that so often conflict us because we all face them together. 
And I, I want to add that I don't see a promise here that someone will absolutely come along that went through the same exact temptation as you. I, I think what's in view here is the idea that people have been going through that very temptation since the beginning of time. And by God's grace, they've overcome. People have beaten the thing that you're going through. In some sense. Absolutely has happened. But I do believe that through the prayer and prompting of the Spirit of God, you can, God can and often will bring someone who has a very clear understanding of your specific struggle into your life. But when he doesn't, just know that others have existed that have faced that temptation. It's not new. It's been dealt with for years. It's been dealt with for really eternity, as far as the world's concerned. But know even further that the promise here is not that community is the answer to your struggle. It's Jesus is the answer to your struggle. And what we as a church want to do is not point you to my struggle and see how well I did with it. It's to point you to the Savior that sustained us through that struggle and was ultimately victorious in our life over that struggle and over that temptation. So even if you never meet somebody who has the same exact struggle that you do, which is highly unlikely, but if it never happens, let's take to heart the words of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you never meet another person that struggles the way that you do with the thing that you do, know that Christ faced that temptation for you that he intercedes for you with the knowledge of what it's like to go through that temptation. That he struggled through that temptation. That he died to satisfy that temptation. And that he intercedes and prays for you on behalf of your temptation. It's through the understanding... It is not through the understanding of others that we are promised freedom from our temptations, but through the grace and goodness of Christ who meets us where we are, having been there before. So Paul points us to number three, that God is always faithful. God is always faithful. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In the last part of verse 13, Paul was saying that you can take courage by looking to the past to stir up repentance. And here we see him giving us courage for the future with a sure hope, a promise that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. Paul is warning us, however, that a temptation, no matter how small, can still steamroll us if we rely on our own strength. Paul's not merely pointing to God as someone who keeps his promises, though he is pointing to God in that way. And God does keep them. He's pointing to God as a guardian of his people who states, you are under my protection, you are safe, I will not leave you, I will not let you go, you have no cause to fear when you depend entirely on me. 
It is only when we introduce an element of self-reliance that fear will reign in our hearts. It's only when we introduce an element of self-reliance that fear will reign in our hearts. God says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. James tells us that temptation starts with us. It's born in our inner being and it works itself out. So God helps us to not be overcome by temptation in at least two ways. And we're only going to go over two. Number one, he gives us strength. He gives us strength. In case you're having trouble seeing that in this passage, he says he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with your temptation will also provide the way of escape. Well, the reason that God knows your ability is because he's given you the ability. He knows exactly how much strength. He will not allow us to be tempted above our ability. This is on, right? Okay. He will not allow us to be tempted above our ability. To withstand the temptation that we're put through. That we bring ourselves into. There's an inherent rebuke here. If God keeps us from temptations greater than we can withstand, then we cannot use temptation as an excuse for sinning. It's not a guarantee that we will withstand or always be faithful. But it is a guarantee that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. We struggle in our faithfulness to him. We need his faithfulness to us. And he's faithful always. And in light of all this, Paul then says that we must distance ourselves from our idols. We must distance ourselves from our idols. If you look back, verse 14, therefore my beloved, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He's connecting us back to the exhortations made in chapter 8. That we not participate in things that will very likely draw our hearts to our idols and away from God. Keep in mind the actions of the Corinthians. They're returning to feasts. They're eating meats offered in worship and celebration of false gods. The concern was that this would lead to a worship of those gods. It's very unlikely that these people were going to church on Sunday or whatever day they worshipped um, these idols and actually participating in that. This wasn't an inward issue so much as the outward action that God is speaking to. So they're, they're going to these festivities. They're still part of the church in Corinth. They're receiving this letter. But they're going to these festivities, they're eating these, these, these meat offered to idols. And Paul is saying, in a sense, you are allowing yourselves to be called back to what's familiar, to what's tempting, to what you struggle with. He says you can't do that. You'll, your hearts will turn. You'll start worshiping them. You'll see that meat is provision. I don't know what exactly it was, but something's going to happen here that, that turns your heart. And so there is an expectation that inwardly gets outwardly. That if if we're going to recognize God as the one who sits on the throne and redeems all things in our lives, that, that our actions have to reflect that he's on the throne and redeeming all things in our lives. And that excludes us from participating in things that we're going to struggle with. There has to be a dose of wisdom there on our parts to know where our temptations lie. It's 
tantamount to someone who's an alcoholic hanging out at a bar, someone addicted to pornography, allowing themselves to be in a situation where they can be exposed to it. Or someone caught in adultery convincing themselves that a platonic friendship with that person could still be a healthy choice. And Paul says, run, flee. Don't work out the logic, just run. Get away from it. It will call your heart away from God. It will become an idol. The temptation will bear its fruit. He says, run. I'm not going to stick with this. We're really going to close because I know we've, we've talked about this a lot, but it's something that's spoken into my own heart these last couple of weeks going over this is that I entertain these things far too often. I am an angry driver. And I allow myself to get in situations where I'm just annoyed enough to get angry. I don't have road rage, thankfully, but, you know, Alex will be like, why are you yelling at them? They can't hear you. You're annoying me. Please stop. She gets to deal with that all the time. Like, she reminds me that I'm not as good of a driver as I think I am. But there's a situation, there's a sense in which I could see the temptation become an idol where every little thing somebody does on the road is something that I have to correct. I have to comment on. I have to make sure it's done right. And I can submit a lot of my time in the car to doing that. And it can ruin my day. I have a terrible commute. It's not even long. It's just Route 3 is the worst. Going down to Merrimack from Manchester at rush hour in the morning is just the worst possible place you could possibly put me in. But I have to do it every single day. And so there are temptations that could lead to idols that I need to flee from. I don't know, maybe I need to take a back road or just pray as I'm driving. Something. But it gets into the nitty-gritty of our hearts. I'm not talking about massive things. I mean, we live in an age where rape culture is no longer this hyperbole. It's something that happens all too regularly. And it's not just towards women, but that is really purported by how Hollywood presents them and gives us an idea. And it doesn't, be, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'm tempted to do that. It starts with these smaller things. I'm tempted to think of somebody as less human than I am. I'm tempted to regard them in my heart as something, fill in the blank. I'm not trying to be ridiculous or nitty-gritty, like nitpicky, but there are things in our hearts that we have to keep in check, that God calls us to keep in check. And I only use that, that as an example of something that we can see kind of progressing through our culture. It's, it's always been an issue, but just progressing through our culture. And in my own heart, I, I don't want my anger at the guy driving next to me on the road to turn into my anger at my coworker, to turn into me losing my job, to getting angry at my wife, to losing my house, to getting angry at the mortgage company. It's just like, I know, it sounds funny, but I, I, tr I think what we're seeing here is small temptations, small struggles, undealt with, unanswered in our own hearts, can lead to larger things. All they're doing is going into a cookout. But that cookout is used to worship these false gods, and, and Paul is cutting them off there. Don't do it. If you know 
if wisdom tells you, if your church speaks into the fact that participating in something may cause you to have an idolatrous heart, we should be willing to let go of that. And it's hard. It's something I struggle with regularly. But we have to get to the point where we're willing to let go of these things because we're pursuing Christ. We're looking for satisfaction in him when we need his faithfulness. So we must distance ourselves from these idols. Therefore, my beloved brother, flee idolatry. He says, flee it. Flee it by running to Christ. It's not enough just leave these things. It, it, we need to replace them. We need to pursue what we're supposed to be pursuing. Set your affections on the giver of life and breath, the source of joy and happiness. Taste and see that he is good and allow that to turn your affections for the things that have taken his place bitter. Allow your affections for Christ to turn your other affections bitter. The only sure way for us to unseat our idols is to seek our help in the finished work and the continued work of Christ and his spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the gospel and that it's real, that it speaks into the small places as much as it speaks into the big places. Lord, that you have died to set us free from all idols. Give our hearts a, pars- a posture of worship towards you, Lord, that calls us away from even the small things, that guards us from the big things. That, Lord, you would turn King's Cross Church into a community of believers who willingly confess to one another, another who regularly have words of wisdom for each other. We're able to speak into each other's hearts and draw attention and draw worship and draw praise back to Christ and everything that he's done. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.